Welcome to this Christmas week, end of year holiday edition of the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, December 26th, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, reminding you as the year comes to its close, the Commentary is a 501c3 nonprofit. We depend upon our listeners, our readers, our followers to help us keep the lights on and continue doing what we're doing here. If you will do so uh, with a non with a tax deductible donation, I would be very grateful. You can go to commentary.org slash donate for that purpose with me as always sated and happy and looking forward to a wonderful new year. We have executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Habe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So we thought in this abbreviated uh, series of shows we're going to do this week that we would give you some recommendations for um, fun things to do on your break. And today, uh, I think we're going to talk about books that we really like or liked some of them from this year maybe some of them not from this year um there's still i think i'm trying to think if there's one night left of hanukkah we're recording this a week early so there may be one night left of hanukkah and if that's the case and i don't have my math wrong and you still have a hanukkah an eighth night present you want to give maybe we can give you a recommendation you can run out and get it and give it to your loved one uh tonight uh, if not, you could also give them a present. What? 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 You couldn't give somebody another present? Sure, you can. It's the the the, the season of giving. Okay, as we say, for the five hundred one c three nonprofits too, like commentary dot org slash donate. Okay. Uh, Abe Greenwald, you have um, I think been uh, luxuriating in uh, a remarkable two book. Uh, I don't know that I've ever heard of this before, but give give us a sense of what it is that you want to tell people about. Yeah, it's a hard it's a hard thing to describe. It's it's it is a pair of books that that came out slightly on on the marketplace slightly staggered. One one was uh, released you know a month or so after the other, and this is these are Cormac McCarthy's collected sort of new novel, which consists of. The Passenger, which is the first book, and then um, Stella Maris, which is the book that came. It's a companion book that came out, I don't know, a few weeks after. Um, McCarthy, great American writer, uh, one of my favorite living writers. He's nearing 90. Um, he has been this is the book he was he was worked. He was had been rumored to be working on The Passengers for decades, um, I think, since at least the 1990s. I I had lost all hope that we would see it come out. Um, and here it is. And it is very, very, very strange. So, uh, but I, I think um, really kind of monumental uh, and amazing. Uh, McCarthy uh, often deals in violence and darkness and uh, spiritual despondency and sort of uh, existential questions about existence. And uh, that's all here. Um, very, very deeply. So the, the, the books are about, uh, a pair of siblings, boy and girl. Uh, their father was on the team who developed the atomic bomb, and they were sort of born out of uh, this kind of um, 
sense of infernal damnation and it hunts them down in all sorts of ways they are both geniuses the 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 sister more so um she is a she is a pure mathematics genius the the brother is uh into physics but he doesn't practice he's a salvage diver and he's diving in new orleans in the 1980s and he uncovers a very mysterious plane that is at the bottom of the ocean and there is but there is a passenger missing and a lot of a lot of what's going on doesn't add up and then this somehow turns into a sort of meditation on math and physics and the nature of reality and the bomb and god and the devil um and that's 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 the, the best i could do there's there's too much to, to try to uh, explain it in conversational terms but luckily I'm working on a piece for the magazine about it. And I will say um, the brother and sister and the father are Jewish. And this is the most Jewish uh, thing uh, McCarthy has ever written uh, because of that, which is to say it's not very Jewish because he's never written anything Jewish. But they just happen to be Jewish because I think in part he deals with the question of Jewish genius and 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 their uh, outsized represent, representation and things like math and physics. So McCarthy is a very um, <clears throat> he would be a more controversial writer if writers generated controversy the way that they they used to. Um, Abe and I have gone back and forth on this since we first met each other, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago, um, because I recognize McCarthy as an as an extraordinary talent and an extraordinarily um gifted pro stylist uh and uh and and visionary in some ways <clears throat> but i do find the books with the exception of one with the exception of all the pretty horses i find the books often close to unreadable because they are they are so astoundingly dark and grim and incarnadine um and i have only read the first chapter of the passenger <clears throat> And it it is an amazing piece of work. This 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 chapter, this portrait of this salvage uh, diver and this community of <laughs> reprobates and miscreants uh, that he hangs out with in New Orleans. Um, and it's just sort of like a reminder that even in, in great darkness, a writer like McCarthy can have miraculous clarity, wit, spirit. You know, sort of the ability to 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 cast a character or create an unforgettable character in a sentence and a half <clears throat> simply by one line of dialogue and one dis physical description. Um, what's even more remarkable, <clears throat> though, we don't know when this book was written, when these two books were written, and obviously they were one book, and they've been <clears throat> Costello Maris, as I understand it, is essentially like almost like a platonic dialogue, right? It's like yeah, yeah. It it is it is purely um, a conversation between the the sister uh, Alicia and uh, a psychiatrist. So you don't know when that he's been writing it for twenty years. You don't know when things are written. Classically, writers, particularly novelists, past the age of seventy five or something like that, just like all like their facility you know, um, uh, shrinks. So if, if, so you don't know when a lot of this was written and all that, but if in fact it is what you, what you, you call it a monumental book, it, it would therefore be a particular miracle that this book was published on the cusp of McCar of McCarthy's 90th birthday, because that just, 
I can sort of think of like Saul Bellow's Ravelstein, which was published when Bellow was 84. But Ravelstein is a very peculiar uh, performance. It's actually like five different starts of books about the relationship between Bellow and Alan Bloom and also Bellow's near fatal experience with a, with a, a horrible being bitten by a fish and uh, being bitten by an animal in the Caribbean and getting toxoplasmosis. And it doesn't really work as a book. It's just like five different things that were stitched together. But this, I think you're saying is a unified whole. Yeah, I, it's fine. I think about it in terms of Bellow because I think a lot of the late Bellow, sort of everything after kind of the theft or uh, a theft and uh, Bella Rosa connection, the, the energy sort of waned in those books, the later yeah. books, and this doesn't have that, uh, which is which is the shocking thing that he he's actually, in some sense, M McCarthy here is more inventive than he's been in for for his past several books, uh, sort of more invent. As inventive as he's been since his book uh, Suchery, which was a strange early kind of Joycean um, uh, uh, novel, right. um, he's he he does things here he hasn't done before, which it which isn't to say he does um, he does easier things. He he's he sort of goes out on limbs uh, in ways that he hasn't before. You know, I, the one thing I'll say, and then we should we should go to one of our commercial breaks, but. Um, this combined with uh, Tom Tom Stoppard has a play on Broadway, Leopoldstadt, uh, which he wrote when he was 81 or uh, was first performed when he was 82. He is now 85. Uh, the more I think about it, the more I reflect on it. Uh, Stoppard, like like McCarthy, um, is a sort of a, a remarkably imaginative, stylized writer who grapples with very complicated ideas and 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 existential notions but also um very experimental in some ways and Leopoldstadt is not experimental Leopoldstadt is a very or it's not on the surface experimental it's a very conventional family play a family dynamic over 50 years in the same apartment or the same house there's been a, a lot of these things over many many centuries um and yet it's maybe the best thing he's ever written and maybe the best play of the last half century. I'm not sure because I'd have to see it again and read it a couple more times. But um, it is um, it is remarkably deep without seeming deep. And it is remarkably um, provocative without seeming provocative. And uh, the, the little bits I read of The Passenger have that quality that it is something very rich is going on <clears throat> but you are reading essentially a story about somebody going to work um it, at least at the beginning you know this a guy and how he does this again sort of an amazing thing like <clears throat> this absolutely on the nose description of what it's like to be a salvage diver you know in the gulf of mexico it's kind yeah of like but i have to say that that does change then the, yeah. you you get into long elliptical Right. discussions of philosophy and, right. and well there's and, a lot of that in stoppard too i know anyway it's just is, interesting because yeah. like stoppard wrote a play in his 80s that is a remarkable artistic achievement and mccarthy here almost at 90 doing the same those books by the way you can buy at bookstore they're 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 being sold together like as they're two books but you can buy them together if you want to for that for that present for the loved one in your life and now let's take a break and hear from our friends at fire 
Do you know only one in three Americans believes we can fully exercise our free speech rights? That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights. Join the fight for free speech at www thefire.org. Christine Rosen, what what do you have to tell the people? Well, uh, first of all, I have to give a shout out to books from, uh, first of all, Noah's book, Everyone Should Read, which was awesome. Amazing book. We were all lucky to read some of, you know, early chapters of it. And there was a great excerpt um, in, in the magazine too, but everybody should read Noah's book. Um, I loved Matt. Now Connetti's I have to cut book. that part from my, no, my thing. No, no, no. I was going to go, no. ah, nobody said my book. No, I oh, I I I say Noah's book. I love Noah's book. Um, I gave it actually to uh, a couple of my family members too. So um, Noah's book. That's Matt the rise Con of the new Puritans. Rise of the new Puritans. Matt Condon's book about the right was great. Jamie Kirchick's book, Secret City, about Gay Washington, was phenomenal. So those are all like friends of the podcast books. But I usually do read a lot of fiction. Chris Steyerwalt's bad news. Yes, another, Chris Steyerwalt, which I I got yes. to review, which is another awesome book. Um. Yeah. Those are all great. Uh, I will say my favorite books this year, though, were both uh, nonfiction. Um, the first one was a book by uh, James Vincent called Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement. Uh, it might sound kind of nerdy and weird, but it's actually a fascinating look at how we came to measure things the way we do. Now, I will say Vincent is is all in on the metric system, so he doesn't like that Americans are very against the metric system, and there's a little bit of culture war going on there about the metric system. But it's a fascinating, fascinating look at how different cultures determine the value of measurements and how they are then how they then uh, become universal for those cultures, and when there's conflict, how those resolve. So it's just a fascinating. If you like those kind of Hidden history, and I hate that it got as a subtitle the hidden history of measurement because it's it's just the history of measurement. It's fascinating. That's worth it. But the book I really loved was um, Olivier Zunz's biography of uh, Alexis de Tocqueville called "The Man Who Understood Democracy." And the reason I love this, although there's plenty of other biographies of Tocqueville, you know, people have read "Democracy in America," is that he really yeah, Zunz speaks French and looked into the archives in France, and he situates Tocqueville as a human being in France, and you kind of really get into Tocqueville's sensibility when he came for those nine months in, in America. Um, you know, this is a guy who was 25 years old. He was fascinated by democracy and by equality, and he came from a culture as an aristocrat where he'd lost relatives to the terror. You know, they'd been beheaded. So he had this particular um, sort of both a, both a kind of... Um, overly optimistic understanding of democracy and equality and that was then grounded in the reality that he saw when he was when he was here but what what i read it as uh, especially given this year where we've heard all of this hyperbole about the end of democracy democracy in peril you know all the all this kind of democracy talk is that we've we've been here before like democracy by its nature is kind of always in a state of crisis because it's such a risky thing to to undertake and tocqueville really understood this as an aristocrat coming to this country and Zunz's biography of him captures at many points along the des descriptions of his journey, just how the kinds of questions, the important questions that Tocqueville was asking um, as a young man that have obviously had lasting effect. But he was a classical liberal and, you know, he worried about the tyranny of majorities. He worried about, you know, demagoguery, all the stuff that we claim to care about now, but that in a weird way, um, I think our majority culture is now... Uh, 
if you look at it from a kind of culture war perspective, is much more liberal, right? They actually are the majority, but they're but the the threats to democracy talk sometimes rings hollow. This was a reminder of why it's important to ask those questions from a from a sort of historically accurate and ethically honest point of view. So I really loved it for that. And I loved how many of the French sources he incorporated into his work. So I highly recommend that one. Um, I read a lot of poetry for nonfiction, and I, I kind of did a deep dive back into T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, which I highly recommend to people. I read a lot of commentary about it and criticism of it, too. Uh, it's a it's just a wonderful work. It was Eliot's favorite work. Um, it's about it's about the seasons of life. It's about senses of time and and deeply held senses of place. So I would I, I would recommend to our poetry reading listeners uh, reread the Four Quartets. So that's Olivier Zunz, Z-U-N-Z, mm -hmm. The Man Who Understood Democracy. Um, James then, Vincent, Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement. Right, and T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. You know, you remind me with the Vincent book of a, of a book. Uh, every now and then, you the these um, eccentrically, uh, is eccentric studies of something across history come out and sometimes they really don't work because they're too cutesy. You know, it's like right. that uh, history of the 18th century and four objects or something like that. Right. But maybe the foundational work in this, in this uh, category was David Landis's revolution in time, which came uh, out about 40 years book. ago, which is yes. a book about clocks. Wonderful book. And his idea is that the invention of the clock created the modern world because it right. was the first time that people had an independent measure of time. And they looked to an object upon. to tell them how to behave. That was right. another transformational. Yes. And yes. so that the clock before the clock, you know, uh, all time was relative except for, you know, when the sun rose and when the sun set and, and, uh, and then suddenly you could break time down into increments agreed upon increments that everybody could understand that this this was necessary for the Renaissance. This was necessary for, you know, the creation of the modern economy, all of these things. And you don't think about it that way. And uh, Landis, who was, I think, a professor at Harvard, that's um, really an extraordinary book and book. just yeah, like, like eye-opening and revelatory. Anyway, um, so let me take a break and tell you guys about our friends at Bolin Branch. Um I'm uh, I have a lot of literature here where they're kind of trying to tell me to tell you to buy for the holiday season but we're kind of a little past the holiday season so let's just talk about ball and branch sheets and why you should get them even if even if you've already gotten your presents for your loved ones because the signature hemmed sheet set from ball and branch is made from the finest 100% organic cotton you'll ever feel for a luxurious experience you'll enjoy for years to come, Bolin Branch sheets are made different so you can sleep better at night. Finest 100% organic cotton on earth, as I said, free from toxins, pesticides, and harsh chemicals at every step of its making. Made by artisans who earn the pay and respect they deserve. Designs and colors for every bedroom style and mattress size. They're all season sheets. They have an unmatched softness, and they get softer with every single wash. Best of all, Bolin Branch gives you a 30-night worry-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all orders and if you should have missed your giving and you need a late present the signature sheets do come wrapped and ready in a beautiful holiday gift box that creates an unboxing experience your loved ones will never forget so bring home a better night's sleep this holiday season with bone branch bedding for a limited time get 20 percent off your first set of sheets and free shipping 
when you use promo code commentary at bollandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. Noah Rothman, you have one book on your list. You're you're going <laughs> to use economy. You're going to economize and point people to one place. That's one way to say boring. But yes, I'm going to bore the audience because <clears throat> I, I think I brought the fiction series that I'm still reading, uh, Andre Spakowski's The Witcher series. I'm still, it's a nine book series. I'm still going through it, but I don't read a lot of fiction. So it's a slow, slow roll. But the best um, nonfiction book that I read this year is our friend Matt Connetti's The Right. And listeners to this podcast will be very familiar with it. Readers of the magazine will be even more familiar with it. We did a symposium on it. So it's treated it like the important book that it is. And it is an extremely important book. Uh, the author nobly attempts dispassion in um, creating this work of intellectual history, though he admits he has a side that he's rooting for, but um, delves into the intellectual journey of the right uh, beginning in the 1920s, um, the right and the Republican Party to which that is responsive to it. Uh, from progressivism into populism, into conservatism, and then back into populism, which is the era that we're in. And it's hard to read this book, and the author acknowledges it, um, with the without applying the our moment to it. Uh, it's a fantastic uh, roadmap to help you navigate an otherwise very intellectually unsettled landscape on the right, and a fractious one, uh, and. Matt's book helps you place our moment within a continuum, a tradition uh, of thought on the right that makes this moment more predictable, easy, easier to understand, less disorienting. Uh, in and it's very valuable in that sense. It's just just a you know a, a service journalism, but also it's a really stellar work of um, of research. Of uh, it's you know an academic triumph as well, and and very readable. It's really hard to make the subject matter that you're tackling here, which is can be pretty dry, um, really digestible as a narrative, as you know, it, it flows like a story over the course of a century of intellectual evolution. And if you like that sort of thing, and I do, um, this is a really stellar work. So Matt, it's a triumph uh, on Matt's part. And if you missed it, you really shouldn't. Okay, so um, I'm going to recommend two memoirs. Uh, the best book that I've read this year of in, in the realm of contemporary politics is Benjamin Netanyahu's BB, My Story, which I've just finished. Um, and uh, the first half of this book uh, is a classic of the memoir genre. It's about growing up uh, in this uh, remarkable family in, in Israel and, um, with his father, who was not only a great scholar, maybe the greatest scholar of the Spanish Inquisition um, uh, who has ever lived, but was also a Zionist activist and had a great deal to do with um, fomenting uh, support for Zionism in the American political system in the 1940s, which he lays out very brilliantly, including his father's connection to Vladimir Jabotinsky, who was the great revisionist Zionist leader. Um, one uh, fascinating detail to me that, that, that somehow connects this whole story unexpectedly with my family is that uh, Bibi's mother, uh, whose maiden name was Marcus, um, actually grew up partially in the Twin Cities. Um, 
she was from a Lithuanian family. Her father uh, went, uh, went to the Twin Cities to make his fortune, went, then went to Israel, then came back, then went back, um, and uh, was himself a proto-Zionist in the Twin Cities community. And there's a, a detail, there's a portrait of his mother, of his grandfather, uh, leaving uh, to go to Israel with his family in 1913. And there's an article in the paper about his departure for the Holy Land and hundreds of people going to see them off at the train station. There were speeches and their people were crying. This was in 1913, just before the war broke out. And uh, I am pretty sure that in that crowd, likely my grandmother, um, Rose Kalmanson, later to be Rose Rosenthal, must have been in that crowd because my grandmother was born in the Twin Cities and was an early Zionist and met my grandfather at a Zionist meeting in the Twin Cities. He was an immigrant. He had not yet gotten to the Twin Cities uh, until until like 1915, 1916, but met at a Zionist meeting in 1916. So weirdly enough, there's some, and I, I know, I've known Bibi Netanyahu very slightly for many decades and this twin cities connection never never came up for me anyway the first half of the book which describes the unit sayert matkal that his brother was in and that he was in and that 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 staged the wildly successful raid at entebbe in which his brother was the only uh israeli fatality the only uh, the only uh, uh you know uh commando basically who who lost his life in that in that mission, and then this unexpectedly set Bibi off on his political journey. Anyway, it's just it's just that that first half of the book is just a breathtaking portrait of life and life as a son of a responsible scholar and a and you know a lot of things to live up to and all of that. The second half of the book, which is also very interesting, is more political because it's much more about his political life and he's still dealing with people that he has to make coalitions with and pacts with and things like that. And so he's much more careful uh, than he is and, you know, careful and, and, and prudent for somebody who's not that prudent a person necessarily um, in the way that he handles this, but that it really is a wonderful piece of work, a wonderful piece of writing. And uh, that's BB, my story by Benjamin Netanyahu and the other, which this is just candy is Shy, which is the memoir of Mary Rogers. Mary Rogers was the daughter of Richard Rogers, the greatest American um, popular composer, uh, you know, who did Sound of Music in Oklahoma and 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 the musicals with uh, uh, Rogers and Hart. And uh, Mary, his daughter, wrote one wildly successful musical herself in her 20s that's Once Upon a Mattress and then wrote some children's books. Um and this is a portrait of sort of like growing up as the daughter of a uh, of a famous person and his cold, bitter, crazy wife, and what it's like to be the daughter of of somebody who is both universally beloved and who is like whose talent just shines through everything, but was just a lousy person and not a nice person and not a good parent. And uh, her mother, especially, who was um, who was uh, lived in his shadow, was also just just terrible. But Mary herself made a real crazy life for herself, and there was a lot of tragedy, a lot of heartbreak. It's really, really, really funny. It's really there's just portraiture of 
great cultural figures of the American century. Uh, her closest friend for decades was Stephen Sondheim. Anyway, it's just like eating candy. If this topic is of any interest to you, and and uh, and so I recommend it highly. And I have one potboiler to recommend. Uh, a novel called Five Decembers by James Kestrel, who was actually a writer named Jonathan Moore, who for some reason decided to publish this book as James Kestrel. And it is like gobstopping. So it's about a Honolulu police detective in 1941 on the on the cusp of the war who is sent to investigate um, a, a, a killing on a boat. And he ends up in Japan in 1941 in hiding uh uh, as as the war breaks out and has to live sort of for three years in this Japanese house with this scholar and his daughter. And uh, and then he finally it's over and he returns and then he solves the murder that he was uh, that he had been set off to do. It's just an incredibly imaginative, continually surprising book that sort of comes out of nowhere and just grabs you and won't let go that's five decembers by james kestrel so that's my choices are bb my story shy by mary rogers and five decembers by james kestrel so we have those we have the passenger and stella maris by cormac mccarthy from abe we have the right by matt Continetti from noah and we have the man who understood democracy by olivier zunz and once again, I've forgotten James Vincent's book title. James Vincent's book title. Uh-oh, Christine has also forgotten James Vincent's book title. You're on mute, Christine. Yeah, hold on a second. Actually, I did. I just blanked on his book title. Yeah, I'm sorry. That was that was that was unfair. The hell is it? Oh, Beyond Measure. Beyond, Beyond measure. measure. Beyond Measure. Okay. So Beyond Measure by James Vincent. It's because he has measure and measurement in the title and the subtitle. So I was like, Beyond yeah. Measurement? Beyond Measure. Not, yes, Beyond Measure by James Vincent. Hidden Vincent. History of Measurement. <laughs> yeah. So there we have it. That's us giving you book recommendations here at the end of 2022. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about TV. So with that, uh, for Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning. Keep the candle burning.